Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM PhD life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. This week, we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Mikhail Shalaganov. Misha is currently a postdoctoral researcher at MIT. His research covers a variety of areas in nanophotonics, from quantum optics to his current work in, in mid-infrared meta-lenses. For his work, he has won several awards, such as a 2017 College of Engineering Outstanding Graduate Student Award from Purdue University and the 2019 MRS Fall Meetings Best Presentation Award. In addition to that, he has over 1,000 citations to his name. In this interview, we explored his path through academia thus far and his thoughts on what it takes to be a successful researcher. So without further delay, here's the interview. First, uh, Misha, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this interview. Yeah, so I see that you... The whole NSAC team. Glad to be here. Good, glad to be back as former president of uh, NSAC. Exactly. Uh, so uh, you have a very uh, fascinating uh, background, so I figure we should uh, go ahead and get started there. So what is in what is in the background picture? I see you have a picture of the famous MIT dome. And I guess some... I should move my head so you can <laughs> okay. see it better. <laughs> right. And then a, a magical disc. So what what, the, what is this and uh, why, why is it in your background? Yeah, so the magical disc is what uh, Joy just introduced. Is, uh, I work with metasurfaces and we control the propagation of light in some bizarre, unusual ways. So uh, this is a demo or illustration to one of our recent works and, uh, where we show that with a single lens, uh, we can achieve both uh, diffraction-limited resolution and uh, a field of view which goes almost 180 degrees, which if you open the textbook on optics, it says that it, this is impossible to do with conventional refractive optics, but uh, now with the help of um, nano-tweaking, nanotechnologies, we were able to solve the problem. Wow, so it's a, so the fisheye lens is able to focus that entire image onto this little black uh, monochromatic right. so area. You can see, so this is, uh, this image actually, uh, this is a real panorama of the Killian court at MIT. And then uh, we processed, we simulated how it would look like, I mean, for the visible range, if we use that metasurface architecture in design, what you would see in the focal plane, in the image wow. plane. That's amazing. So you, I, I take it that you learned a lot of these tricks uh, with metasurface engineering during your time at Purdue. But before we get to Purdue, you uh, went to a university that I've actually met a surprising number of alumni from this uh, MIPT. So uh, what, like, what is MIPT like? Because it's a, it's a myth, mystical place, kind of like uh, the MIT of Russia. And so I've heard so much about it. And I'm curious, like, what is a daily life of a student like at a MIPT? Well, I mean, uh, MIPT, uh, maybe just a little bit of history. Uh, mm -hmm. So a lot of people, uh, one of the major known universities in, in Russia is Moscow State University. And then uh, historically, there was also a department which was studied back in around like 1940s after the Second World War, 
for developing the atomic uh, atomic atomic bombs and other different types of weapons. Mm -hmm. So that's why there was a need in the engineering department. But then that engineering department, uh, there was some conflicts between uh, the way the, um, the professors envision the future of the department, and that's why they uh, they relocated, they separated <laughs> from Moscow from the famous Moscow State University and started uh, an institute. Uh, I would say nearby nearby Moscow. Yeah, but overall, what's the what's the student life there? Uh, it's it's actually when I was living there, it was pretty nice. It's a small city uh, outside of Moscow, and you live in the dormitory. So mm -hmm. the lectures start at 9 a.m. and they usually go uh, till the something like 6 or 7 p.m. and there are some additional classes. Yeah, there was a lot of things to to learn: lectures, seminar, recitations, labs. So that's what the typical day of the undergrad student. But it was nice that everything is located so close. You, you just cross the road and you are already in the in the room or um, you could. There are a bunch of sport facilities nearby, like a swimming pool, uh, mm. a football field. And that, that's what amazing, like on, on that uh, small area, you can do a lot of things. Right, right. So, so there was like no no time to to travel uh, from uh, I don't know from from one part of the Moscow to another one. That's that was pretty nice. So so it sounds like it's a pretty intense uh, study schedule there. So what did you uh, get your majors in? My major, uh, I, I guess, as well as any other alumni's major, is uh, applied. Physics and mathematics, that's what okay. it stays in the certificate. Mm -hmm. Although there are several departments. Mm -hmm. And uh, I should say I studied first from the Department of Quantum Electronics. Uh, okay. And then I I transitioned to the uh, Department of General and Applied Physics. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, why, why? What's the department? Right. Well, why why the transition, right? So what why what why did you decide you don't want to do quantum electronics and instead went to a more general applied uh, mathematics and physics? Uh, well, at the beginning, when you apply to the university and mm -hmm. uh, to the institute, um, you can apply like you need to choose which department from the very beginning. Like you don't have that extra year of exploration. As for right. example, here at MIT, all the students are admitted and then they have a year or two to explore and then join up a particular program. So in Russia, it was pretty direct. Like as a high school student, you just finished your high school and you need to bring your documents to a particular department. Okay. And actually at the department, they it would not look good if you are trying to apply to like several departments. So you can apply to only one of them. So okay, and, and, so yeah, I guess at that time I was I was really interested in I mean definitely like electronics, uh, uh, lasers, and that was uh, uh, also nanotechnologies. So these are one of the key features of of the uh, that department of quantum electronics. Mm -hmm. And then later it, it just like appeared there was an interesting program on uh, metamaterials. Okay, and I was like oh that sounds exciting. And right. And then I, that's that's when the then, I, then I transferred yeah to to another to another department. So you heard about metamaterials, but practically at MIPT was anybody doing research on them theoretically or applied or 
was it just a this sounds very interesting and I, I will go into that area kind of thing? I think at that time there was there was not really wide research on the topic. Mm -hmm. They were probably like transitioning or trying to um, I know they would when I just started, they would get probably like the first SEMs or EBL system trying to manufacture mm -hmm. the nanostructures. Um, yeah, so it was it was more of an interesting topic. Like, okay, it, it just sounded really cool. Like you can you can create the materials which uh, didn't exist before and right. do something which goes beyond what is available in nature. So I guess kind of like the lens you were talking about at the beginning, that it does things that you cannot do with conventional optics at all. That's right. Yeah. So so you mentioned that you have to apply to a specific department. So what was it in your your high school education that, you know, you were like, wow, I have to do physics, right? Because <laughs> like, you know, if somebody went through math and physics departments, it's not the easiest life <laughs> you can choose. So why why choose this <laughs> path? Yeah, actually, my um, situation of like high school and then transitioning to, uh, I would say, the top uh, physics institute of Russia, it was quite contradictory because I, I studied uh, 10 years in, in, well, like, in, you know, in Russia, it's not like a, Mm -hmm. high, you can you can split it into high school, middle school, primary school. But right. for us, I mean, it was like the same 10-year block of when you're seven-year-old and then you finish 17. So mm -hmm. actually, I was I, I studied at the, at the school which is known for its arts majors and languages and humanitarian. So it was not really um, physics was, was, was not the, the primary subject like physics and math. Uh, mm -hmm. Although I, I should say that our our uh, school um, had a really nice physics lab, so there was like it it, it looked like a, as a museum. You can find a lot of interesting things there. Right. So I don't know how did they come to physics, uh, but at the end of the high school, definitely physics was my favorite subject. Mm -hmm. uh, although at the very first lesson of of the physics in the middle school, I was probably the worst student. So, so I started the... from being the worst student in the humanitarian school and then somehow uh, finished well in the high school and, and was able to, to get into the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. But even for my tutor who was preparing me uh, for, mathema for, on, for mathematics, like mm -hmm. on physics I didn't have that much problem, but with math I was probably a little bit behind um, comparing to the other guys. Mm -hmm. um, typical in Raleigh to the university and when my mom called her she would say like uh, uh, my son would like to go to that school uh, would you help us to prepare him and and she said it almost like right away like are you crazy it's like only the only the, the people from like a specialized mathematics and physics school go right. there and they and they come to me asking for a training. And now your your son is from some humanitarian gymnasium is trying to uh, right. to get into. She's like, this is unreal. This is impossible. <laughs> and then my mom told me like, okay, how about he will come and you will explain it to him. <laughs> and um, yeah, so this is how um, our journey with uh, my tutor started. And right, it, it was very nice interaction. She she actually helped me to 
um, really like, you know, love the art of mathematics and mm -hmm. that's amazing experience. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that you went to this humanitarian school. So, you know, going back even farther, how did you end up in that school, right? Instead of a more general school or, or a math school? Um, yeah, I think it's, I would say in general, as in my life, it's just a time and place. Like I somehow ended up in the right time, in the right place. I, I lived almost next door to that school. And my mm -hmm. grandma, she attended that. So it was one of the decent schools of, uh, of our city. Um, mm -hmm. And my mom, she also signed me up for that uh, math and physics. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called like Liceum. I mean, they all have like fancy names. They're not just schools. Right, right. But somehow that year they didn't enroll uh into primary school they had like some problems with uh finding the location for the students mm -hmm. and i guess it was like the best choice it was five minutes walk to the school right and uh, the school is of uh is is prestigious one right so this is how i oh it's interesting so uh would you say that you were very like mathematical or is like physics oriented or mechanically oriented when you were like young, like middle school, or did this sort of happen later? I think it started to happen uh, during our like handicraft lessons. Yeah. I don't know how is it called in in American curriculum. Yeah, arts and so crafts. that was actually one of the first uh, inspiring lessons in terms of engineering. Uh, doing something with your hands, we would solder uh, some some electrical schemes, or uh, we would uh, yeah like assemble the radios. Mm -hmm. So this was like the first actual experience of uh, making some physical systems. Mm -hmm. Although later, I think I went more uh, towards um, Olympiad movement. Mm -hmm. So um, like starting from middle school there is uh, there's like several stages where the students from uh, if you're like best from the school then you transition best from the area right. and you there's like a competition in different type of subjects mm -hmm. and this is like very prestigious and uh, so that 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 brought me to the olympiad movement so i started right. to attend like special classes how to solve that uh, type of Olympia, Olympic, Olympiad problems, right. which are beyond the scope of the uh, general uh, curriculum. Mm -hmm. And there I met um, uh, some, I would say, one of my um, teachers in physics. Mm -hmm. So I, I really love to go there like after classes. And it was like really exciting to go and solve with other guys that uh, um, that special the, specialized the... interest in unusual problems right right and then you know it started like i started to attend the summer camps uh where all the kids uh who i mean they would basically teach us some math it was like math and physics curriculum right. and if you talk to people where would where would they prefer to go after finishing their high school they would they would definitely the only answer would be like um uh, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, or for mathematics, it's uh, Moscow State University 
there is like a mechanical mathematical uh, department, which oh. is another famous famous. Wow! Science. So it's it sounds a bit like the uh, American. They have these math camps and things like that, where yeah, the students that dream about going to MIT or Stanford, that's where they they would go. I I actually didn't participate in any of these mm. <laughs> personally. So uh, so I guess so, so you go from humanitarian school. Now you're you go to MIPT. So you said you you had already heard of metamaterials um, so while you were in undergrad. Did you do any uh, like thesis, like undergrad thesis on metamaterials, or like basically the the point of the question is you ended up at Purdue with uh, with uh, Professor Shalayev as your as your advisor. Uh, and so how did that happen? Yeah, I guess it's another <laughs> interesting story uh, about the thesis. Yes. So one of the requirements for graduation is you need to defend the thesis. Although due to the lack uh, of the equipment to work with nanostructures, nanomaterials. So I actually I was spending my thesis year with the group specializing on superconductors. OK, in uh, Institute of Solid State uh, Physics, Chernogolovka, right. uh, quite famous um, institute. So, so I was just to put it in perspective, right? Because I think for for people listening, we don't have a good sense of how uh, like Russian geography. So you're originally from, if I remember correctly, Kirov, Kirov, correct. Which is how many miles or kilometers away from Moscow and MIBT? So it's uh, uh, one thousand kilometers, which is okay. around. Six seven hundred miles. Okay, so uh, quite a distance. Moscow and Kirov. I would All say right. it's it's almost it's Moscow suburbs on the Russian scale. <laughs> so how far how far is MIPT from the center of Moscow? Oh, that's pretty close. It's uh, you can easily well it depends on the traffic of course, <laughs> but if you use uh, it, it uh, like railway transportation, mm -hmm. it can take you 10, 15 minutes. Okay, so it's it's quite close, yeah. uh, and so now um, I'm going to butcher this. You said Chernagalovka. Chernagalovka, yes. <laughs> okay, I, I was not close. <laughs> so, uh, so to how far is that from from MIPT and from Kirov? So now we have three positions. Well, so we it's, can triangulate. it's uh, it's it's Moscow region. Okay, so. Uh, from Moscow center, it's maybe half an hour to an hour, depending on the traffic. Okay. So usually the way it would work, uh, early morning at 6, 7 a.m., the bus would come to pick the students from uh, main campus of uh, MIPT. Okay. And then they would bring us to Chernogolovka, where there, there are like several institutes. Mm -hmm. There's Institute of Landau on theoretical physics. Then okay. there is uh, Institute on Solid State Physics, and there is one uh, on um, something like nanosystems. Actually, okay. you know uh, um, that uh, the Nobel laureates uh, uh, Konstantin Novoselov and Andrei Game, they also okay. uh, they also worked in uh, the Institute of Solid State Physics. Wow! So you're you're walking into like big footprints there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Landau Institute is famous all over the world, so as I'm sure the other centers are also. Okay, so you... all these institutes, they're like in the middle of uh, of the forest. Right. So when you leave there, there is maybe a couple of uh, buildings. There is one store and there are like four, four or five institutes around. Okay, so it's a very quiet, calm place. Exactly. 
So did you ever walk around the building to think or or were you too busy to think? Well, I guess you <laughs> while you're walking through the forest, yeah. Oh, that's that's good to hear. Okay, so so now how did you you so you do your 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 thesis on superconductors. So now you apply to come to several universities in the US or no, just not, Purdue? Not not to several, just not just to several. Purdue. Okay, wow, you, that you was did not mess around. How, how many how many undergraduate schools did you apply to? Also just one? I honestly applied to one of them, but my mom, so she felt that I mean, since it's uh, it maybe I mean she was maybe not sure whether I'll make it or not. So she said secretly she would send my documents to some to some other place just in case, like as a backup. Because you know, for the man in Russia, uh, if you fail uh, getting into a university, mm-hmm. you have to go to uh, mil- like serve in the military. I see. Okay. So, and yeah. And a lot of parents are quite not paranoid uh, about that. So they right. they want their especially boys to make sure they, they go to, to, to the universities to instead uh-huh. of going to the service. Okay. So you apply to, to Purdue. And uh, what uh, what gave you so much confidence, right, that that you would be able to do research at Purdue? Mm, well, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. So, but so in that case, uh, why why Purdue, right? Why did you pick Purdue, uh, Purdue? instead of uh, you know Stanford or, or uh, MIT? Yeah, or... yeah, that's what I um, I think. Thanks to uh, my advisor, Fletcher Life, and uh, also uh, uh, Sasha Baltasiova, they they came uh, with the talk uh, to MIPT. And mm-hmm. at that time, I would say after working in um, Chernogolovka, I felt a little bit kind of not, not bored, but um, it looked like kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of grumpy atmosphere. Because mm-hmm. they're mostly like all the people were working in the lab. So it was, you know, for young people, you don't want to go to the places where you see there's like not that much of perspective to. Uh... So that's and uh, I think that lecture, um, it, it kind of showed me like, wow, you can have like uh, some fun in science. It's it's not it's not as boring as it as it as I have seen about it. Right. Because in the lab, it's like, okay, so we're measuring some impedance of the new superconducting material. Like, why are we doing that? All right, I don't know. <laughs> we just need to measure at some frequencies, right. uh, at different temperatures. But it was kind of lacking, like, why are we doing that? What, what is it for? Mm, I um, see. But then when I came to the United States, it's it's definitely different here, especially if, if you look at the groups. There are a lot of young people working in the in the group right. and uh, that gives like creates a special atmosphere. Uh, I don't know, maybe in Russia, I haven't been there for like 10 years, maybe the things have changed, but at that mm-hmm. time it was even at the top places, you could see by people who work there, it's most like all the generations and. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, that's a, one a very interesting difference, I think, between the US and in Russia that I, I found out when I was doing some research is that the research centers are not part of the universities um, in the sense that they're not like at MIT, right? Your professor is, you know, an employee of MIT 
and he teaches at MIT, and then he also has a research group entirely under MIT. But what I learned is in Russia, like MIT teaches, MIT teaches and, then the, and then the research centers are a separate entity. Yes, correct. It's a completely different system. Right, and so that might be a reason because those are professional research houses, sort of. That, exactly. Where they have professional researchers. So, uh, so you come to Purdue, uh, and you're you're very happy with the atmosphere. So, uh, what uh, what was your first project, and uh, how did that go? So my first project uh, was about the nano diamonds. So okay. that's exactly uh, how I, I, I. That was the overall theme for for my research, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I think it it almost started uh, right away, almost from the first week. Okay. Uh, just professor said that we need uh, somebody to work on the topic. Yeah. So so the front is that way. <laughs> <laughs> And Misha, Misha went on the, so so you uh, you started the, so how did how did Professor Shalayev decide this and how did you decide to go in this area? Like, how, do you know how the project originated or or like what was it that I, was I so interesting? Was, I, I think uh, in the group there was some preliminary experiments mm -hmm. uh, trying to find to study nano diamonds and to see if we can leverage the color centers. And right. then there was a topic of hyperbolic metamaterials, which can substantially enhance the emission properties of the of the light emitters. Okay. So that was uh, direction of to see can we enhance the spontaneous emission of uh, especially single color single photon sources um, produced by these color centers with hyperbolic metamaterials. Okay. So and then that theme kind of ran. Through your research the entire time. I mean, I, if I remember, your your entire thesis was about color centers yeah, yeah. and, and nanophotonics. The, the core of the of my thesis, yes. So, so that project I know went very well for you. I think it's uh, still hanging on the wall in Burke. There's a cover oh, of, of laser photonics <laughs> reviews. Yes, so we haven't forgotten you. Uh, so you so you do this project. It goes very well. Uh, and then where do you go from there? To MIT? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, we're gonna ignore the next like three or four years of, of work <laughs> completely. So, because I, I I recall at that time that um, the quantum uh, initiative in Professor Shalaev's group was really beginning to pick up steam, and you were one of the big people that began development of that. So, That's right. like, yeah. how did how how was it sort of being uh, responsible for pushing into a new area? Like, what were the challenges, uh, and how did you? Kind of deal with being kind of a new person, uh, like a, a new uh, pioneering a new direction in the group. I would say, because mm. I know you yeah, and like, Simon Bogdanov uh, worked a lot on this. Yes. So looking back at this project, so I think in general the uh, quantum labeled projects are quite uh, difficult and expensive and uh, complex comparing to all the other uh, things. And I think for me it was uh, oh it, it it was a, a good big challenge mm -hmm. uh, to to make it to make it work. Um, I think the first experiments which I have done they were not as difficult as when we further moved and um, um, elaborated the the equipment and the system. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I think what, what, also... what do you think made the first project? Because usually I think students have the reverse problem, right? When they first start, everything is very difficult. And then it, it becomes easier over time as they get experience. Mm. Um, but so what in your case, I think the reverse happened, right? The first project went very nicely and smoothly. And then the, the project ramped up like exponentially in difficulty. So what, yeah, what yeah, was the difference point... between your initial work and the other work that made it so much more difficult? Well, the initial work was basically studying the nanodiamonds and their properties and trying to find which one is the best type of nanodiamond. So that was, I would say, a pretty straightforward right. project. Although there was some challenge of uh, measuring the fluorescence and trying to see whether we can find the color centers. Uh, and then after that, it was the, the next step would be uh, leverage like fabricate hyperbolic metamaterials and try to right. couple them together and study uh, the fluorescence properties. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it was I was called like increasing the load of uh, uh, on the research slowly right. with every single step. Right. So you've you did these experiments. I know you built a lot of the setups in the in house. So whenever you have to tackle a project like building a, a setup, right, which is pretty complex, how do you approach such a large project and not get discouraged whenever you know inevitably you know item one hundred and forty three on your to do list is not working, <laughs> and mm. you know how, how do you how do you manage a long term complex project and how do you keep from getting sort of burnt out or depressed by how it's not finished yet. How do you deal with all this? Yeah, that's a, a interesting question. Well, I think we already, uh, so from this, as I started, uh, it was not like developing the setup from the scratch. Mm -hmm. So in the nearby lab from uh, Bindi Center, there was already mm -hmm. a setup which we uh, which, which uh, like myself and the person who worked there, then uh, Dad Alyosha and uh, Simeon. So, mm -hmm. so we were like started to change that setup, and then as soon as we knew how that setup operates, then I think it became um, uh, easier to kind of replicate it right uh, in our lab. And that's what okay. definitely on the setup on the like the, the recent setup which is used in in uh, in the lab that's what i would say most credit goes to like simeon who uh, right. assembled it but but the first uh, measurements where we did like g2 uh, or like microwave mm -hmm. um, so that was like some pieces added to that bigger okay uh, confocal microscope so your 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 approach is to sort of build something that works, get some nice results with the minimum amount, and then sort of expand the equipment outward over time. So you basically, like you said, ramp up the complexity. So you yeah, always have yeah. some progress that is being right. Made. So there was like unique this confocal microscope, and then when I needed to measure G two, uh, that uh, I guess I need to explain it then. <laughs> In the half an no, hour. Well, no, we don't. We so don't want was, to go into a lot of detail about it. So, just over, you know, one thousand foot view of this. Yeah. Um, so it was like adding something to that system, and then later replicating uh, or building an even better system uh, later in our our lab. 
So it's more of an evolutionary thing rather than you yeah. know, going from huge jumps. No, it was not like uh, empty table and then something yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. Isha went walking in the woods, comes back, and then just you know builds a setup. <laughs> it's, it's it's not like the movies. So you do all the experiments. You get to your end of your time at Purdue. You win this outstanding uh, graduate research award, um, which. What what would you say uh, set your research apart from the research of other people at Purdue? Like why 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 were you the outstanding graduate research award winner um, versus let's say uh, other um, other researchers? And it, it could be any variety of factors or just that. Uh... I don't know, Sam. I didn't really compare that in a detailed manner, like how I'm better comparing to others. Yeah, I just put together whatever I have done during the. PhD and mm -hmm. seems like uh, the committee members uh, like liked what I have accomplished and decided to to go with it. Yeah. Okay. So you you then decide to do postdoc. So I assume at this point you've more or less decided that the academic career is for you. So what made you choose, let's say, continuing on in academia versus trying to get a, an industry job or or working at like let's say Google or, mm -hmm. or IBM where they have quantum initiatives going on right now? Well, yeah, here it's also, um, again, the situation where I envisioned one thing. So, mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of uh, industry or academia at that time, I, I would be more focused, like to go towards uh, uh, academia. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really think about getting an industrial job. Uh, it was more like a question which direction to go. Right. And then it was... I, I was uh, preparing some postdoc fellowships and in, uh, I mean, applying for the kind of grants, uh, but uh, they didn't really work out. And then one day uh, there was a group at MIT. They were looking for uh, uh, for, for the uh, expertise in uh, metamaterials and metasurfaces. Mm -hmm. And it, it happened that I was graduate at the time. <laughs> so just like you said before, time, place, and opportunity, right? Yes. And then so. uh, my advisors uh, connected me. So it was like through some networker. Mm -hmm. So it, it was definitely not as a formal um, application uh, no, kind of thing. Yes. I see. I see. So basically, it just it just so happened that they needed somebody with exactly your your skill set at exactly that time, and uh, and of course and of course the it's the research you do is is high quality, so it's perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, that decision it was. I mean, I'm really glad that uh, I took that position and where I'm now. So that's right. So although you, maybe at that time I was a little bit hesitant. Because right. it was not maybe how I picture it out, but mm -hmm. it turned out pretty well. Yeah. Okay, so that's a that's actually a good a good question. Is that you you did a lot of work with quantum and nanophotonic structure engineering, and now you're doing mid infrared lenses. So, what would you say the biggest difference that you found between these two areas is in terms of research or community or sort of perspective? Mm. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I was that much in the community of uh, quantum 
photonics mm -hmm. or right. um, photo communication people. I think like in our lab, we work. Our base is uh, nanophotonics. We're coming from the side of nanophotonics to see what kind of challenges we can solve for for quantum optics uh, uh, folks um, for right. that kind of community. So mm -hmm. that's why I would say I'm, I'm, I was and still within the uh, the nanophotonics community and then okay. on the quantum optics side. I see. So for so is, so what you're saying is that this is the great advantage and beauty of nanophotonics is that you can go from engineering nanophotonic structures for diamonds and color centers to nanophotonic structures in mid infrared, and it's a very similar sort of skill set and uh, techniques. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's actually uh, one of the uh, advantages which I had uh, in the group is that um, I somehow uh, was uh, I, I I got this like a broad vision, so I, mm -hmm. I worked on some of the material pro. Uh, with the new photonic materials, mm -hmm. with um, I mean, mostly focused on um, quantum projects and assembling these experimental setups, and then also had an opportunity to contribute to some theoretical, uh, some derivations, analysis, and simulations. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think is also very helpful. So you can easily uh, navigate between like, different. You, you use your skills, like you, you have more vision where you can where you can go or um, mm -hmm. which skills you can apply i see so now now you so you've using all this broad expertise you're now doing this sort of mid-infrared research uh so what uh what 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 does the future look like for you like what are you hoping to do um i know that you recently did a you're doing a startup or you're you're attempting to do a startup. yeah we're considering yes yeah so we're working towards so there is an opportunity for that. So you so right now you kind of have three big roads ahead of you, right? Startup path, professor academic route, and then also industry. So how how are you sort of trying to process through these different opportunities and, and make a decision on which area to go into? That might be a tough question <laughs> and you don't have to have yeah, all the is. answers, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, currently I think I'm trying to uh, like more like live in the current moment to see what is happening. So definitely mm -hmm. that startup opportunity, it just appeared. Um, it I didn't really plan about that, but it seems like there is a lot of people interested in that. So we were contacted by some potential customers, like companies, mm -hmm. investors. So there is definitely need for developing the, this technology. I see. And we are again in the right place in the right time. So we uh, developed that new technology, which enabled to extend uh, the capabilities of meta surfaces, and it's uh, quite simple architecture, right? Uh, and it's scalable. So it has a good perspective for that, right? Um, so, but but I guess the the question is, let's say I put in front of you the best possible position for industry, right? Like whatever, mm -hmm. Google hires you to do, run a, a kind of research at Google. Right, but they don't have it right now. <laughs> right, right, but I'm saying, let's say you hypothetically. Have, let's say you have hypothetically, you have all three positions available, right? You have the, the startup guys are like throwing money at you, saying, please, you know, build it. The, the academic positions, they're, you know, begging you to come and join the department and industry is begging you to join them to do work. How would you 
how would you even begin to think about which which direction to take? Yes, Sam, I don't know. It depends on details. Okay, I'm so not that uh, abstract person. Okay, okay. It, so it all depends on where, uh, what, what kind of uh, thing to do. But overall, I would say for me, what would be like important is to um, bring like some high impact innovation. Okay. Well, so it doesn't really matter where I'm. Uh, if I'm in industry, whether I'm in startup company, where I'm in. In the university uh, mm -hmm. environment, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there was like uh, the book. I guess you also recommended me the Innovators, right, uh, by Isaacson, because you could see that the thriving of this techno of of the IT technology it came from all over the uh, different directions. So it was not fully condensed in the university environment. It was not fully condensed in startups, but it was going from all over the place it was like from national labs from university groups from uh, uh, startup enterprises and and big companies so so okay so you're saying that wherever you go you're just yeah. what you will look for is the uh, what you perceive to be the best opportunity to do sort of yeah, innovative, where, where high impact helpful. work i yes. see Okay, so just the given, given the current uh, situation and what so so you've you've mentioned that you're sort of in the right place at the right time. So how would you say that you end up in this position of being in the right place at the right time? Or is this more of a we look back and say it's the right place in the right time, but it just it just happened. Yeah, it's like miracles, Sam. It's it's a <laughs> random walk walk of miracles. I see. <laughs> I think you, that we you can't control it. You can you can be prepared. Right. Uh, there is like a saying that uh, you can increase your luck by by being by doing your homework and looking for the opportunities. Yeah, that that's a lot of people can walk by and don't trend. see that, but yeah. you're prepared. You already thought about that or or did something, some kind of expertise, and then you see that. Yeah, because like that definitely does seem to be the key theme, right? Is that every position you've moved to is yeah. due to the fact that you worked hard. It might not be where you expect it to be, but it's going. You will have a good opportunity. And I think in general, this skill is important for researchers. Like sometimes you already build uh, the the picture, how your paper will look like, what kind of experiments you need to do, right. uh, and then you just walk through every single step, and then somehow it will end up magically in the paper. But the reality is different. Maybe actually you will find you will find something more interesting during the experiments. Right. Actually, that's what happened to uh, if you read like the, the history of, of discoveries, uh, like the one which comes to my mind was the superconduct how, how the superconductors were discovered. So it happened just by by the accident because the the PhD student just fell asleep during the experiment, and then when he woke up, there was like no resistance, and he's like, "What is that?" I don't know. Something is weird here. Right, right. So a lot of these uh, special accidents, uh, unusual things, uh, led to like big discoveries where mm -hmm. you don't really expect them. So the you've mentioned this. Uh, you've mentioned sort of that people make this mistake of trying to overplan their life or overplan their experiments. So what other, if you had to give advice now that you've kind of gone past PhD, you're looking at, you're mentoring PhD students. Uh, what what would you say the biggest mistakes that people are making when they do PhD? What would you say that those are? 
like if you could give like somebody walks into the PhD program first day, right? And you're like, hey, don't do X, Y, Z. What would X, Y, and Z be? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I don't I wouldn't say well, what I saw sometimes is that people think that um, sometimes experiments you just push the it's like you put say your sample in a black box, put push the red button and then it gives you some results. But the reality is different. So sometimes you need to um, sometimes this black box is not working and you need to really um, find out what is the problem, why it doesn't work. So right. sometimes people, I feel like lacking some sort of persistence. They, they would say like, oh, I don't know what to do. And right. then I think it would be uh, great like to cultivate in people the, um, the sense that they, that I need to find maybe some other solutions if, yeah. if that one is completely doesn't work, but try to, um, stay focused on your goal and try to find methods to to go over like to solve the problem like All don't right. don't don't give up too soon on it. don't give up too soon but when do you when do you give up that's actually a very hard question right of when, when would you say is a good time to give up hmm. it's just like when it works it's like as as churchill said never 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 <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's that's a good question um, because indeed, um, well, I think what is important is to make some a conclusion, like what you observe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's a difficult question to answer. Right. Sometimes, sometimes you you there are some moments when you're like already okay, I give up on that, and then you go to sleep, and then in the middle of the night you're like, I forgot to change the filter, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, this is why the whole week I couldn't get a good signal. Right. Okay. So there's so... like even some small things. Uh, and then you thing. tried almost everything in your setup it doesn't work but then suddenly you know it's it's working yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 crazy how close you can be to success and have it be look completely wrong <laughs> yeah 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 like the the um the how's called like the border between the successes and failure is like is like very close it's, it's like a very narrow margin right. Right, right, absolutely. So that's what people sometimes they're like already there, already make it, right. but then like but they get ah, too discouraged okay, or too... They, they don't know that there is could be a one one nanometer from the victory. I see. So Misha, unfortunately, I mean we could keep going forever, but uh, unfortunately we have finite limited time, uh, and the the uh, line between going over time and going way over time is also one nanometer thick. So. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming and talking today. Um, it's been really interesting to learn about your whole history. Mm -hmm.